This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. We need to have coalitions of the committed. When we get stuck, we can't allow the stuck part to reduce and erode the institution. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. This year's Future Strategy Forum focused on the future of statecraft. The forum brings together scholars who research national security, leading practitioners, and next-generation PhD and graduate students for a conversation about critical global issues. The day's second panel discussed international institutions and examined how a more overtly competitive global system may affect these organizations. Good morning, I am Dr. Misha Thompson, Director of Global Partnerships, Policy and Innovation at the U.S. Helsinki Commission, a congressionally led commission um, that is led by our chairman, Congressman Alcee Hastings, that also includes our executive branch, and we are bipartisan and bicameral. Our commission was created almost three decades ago to monitor commitments agreed to by the 57 North American and European countries that make up the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It is an international organization, and it is so timely that we are meeting today to discuss the future of statecraft and the role of international organizations. As the U.S. hosts NATO on its 70th anniversary, and only a few short days after OSCE election observers observed elections in Ukraine. Now, while there are numerous international organizations ranging from the OSCE to the WTO, we are primarily going to focus on the UN, NATO, EU, and regional organizations such as ASEAN uh, for our conversation today, um, per instructions from our organizers. So now I will say I'm honored to moderate today's panel with some of the US and Europe's top foreign policy minds. Um, First, we have with us today Dr. Esther Brimmer. She currently heads NAFSA, the Association of International Educators, and her distinguished career includes three appointments within the U.S. Department of State, including most recently serving as the Assistant Secretary for International Organization Affairs from April 2009 to 2013. We also have next to me Heather Conley, CSIS's Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic, and Director of the Europe Program, who served at the State Department as well as Deputy Assistant Secretary for European and uh, Eurasian Affairs from 2001 to 2005. We also have our historian with us today, Dr. Christina Spohr, who is the Helmut Schmidt Distinguished Professor in the Kissinger Center for Global Affairs and also at the London School of Economics. Finally, we are joined by Naima Green, who uh, who is here from Harvard University where her research focuses on Asia, anti-Americanism, and soft power. And so I actually wanted to talk to Dr. Bremer and have you talk a little bit about the UN and um, how the US is or is not showing up, um, who is um, showing up, and, and what type of impact this is actually happening, uh, having on US foreign policy goals. 
Thank you. Indeed, a large part of diplomacy is just showing up. You are absolutely right. And I will say one of the things that I thought was extremely important was that any time the United States participates in an organization, that it does show up. So, for example, if you look across the United Nations system, whether in New York, Geneva, Rome, wherever, that we always thought it was important that um, the United States not leave its seat vacant that whether we're a member or even if we're an observer, that you make sure that there is somebody from the United States who's in that room. Because that shows that, going back to our conversation earlier about what's a great power, a world power has world interests. And it recognizes that there are activities related to those interests happening in multiple fora. And therefore, it is present, active, and taking notes in those fora. And it's true, and I agree with you wholeheartedly, countries notice whether the United States is there or not. We clearly have enough people, so the question is, uh, does the United States participate? So yes, let's take a couple, couple examples. The first is that looking at opportunities to attend you know, events that are important to the United States, but also sometimes it's important to show up with events hosted by your friends. So I'll say in Geneva, there were countless times I flew when I was at the state from Washington to Geneva to be there. We hosted, for example, iftar dinners in the U.S. mission to the European institutions, European UN institutions in Geneva, because it was important for the United States to show up and say it was important for the Muslim-majority countries that we cared that this was important to them. And being there and, the, and being part of those conversations was important. Uh, before the United States was elected to the Human Rights Council, yes, I'll talk about that controversial body, that um, we were an observer. One of the first things we did before we elected I, mean, I think I was sworn on April 6th, and I think we had to make sure that seat was occupied within a few weeks. Because the idea was, again, you do not want an empty chair behind the placard. Indeed, we have cards who have a book on that, that topic. So that's the first. The other is that we're talking about statecraft. So I'll say that some of the ways the U.S. can actually be more effective is to make sure that the different parts of the U.S. government, or even the State Department that are working on these issues, are talking to each other. So for example, the United States is present in regional bodies and global bodies. It's important that the diplomats who are doing regional diplomacy, because as you say, what you're talking about in ASEAN, absolutely fundamental and relates to what we're doing in the global body. And I'll say we used to, when we would uh, have uh, the ambassadors from the International Organizations Bureau back, who are at the UN, we'd call up the ambassador from ASEAN. We'd have the ambassador from NATO. We'd have the ambassadors from the other organizations, although they were in other Bureaus meet with mine. Um, in fact, we actually created an office within the I.O. Bureau, which existed from the time I was there to, I think, about six months ago, um, which consciously have followed what was going on in the regional bodies so that we could be consistent regionally and, and globally. Because again, a world power should be able to be, to be able to, to, to do that. Again, if the, uh, if the U.S. is not, pre the question is who is showing up? Yes, we see both other world powers I think the biggest change is the role of China in international organizations, both in the existing international organizations. Of course, it always had a seat at the Security Council. It is now, um, I believe, still is the largest contributor of peacekeeping troops among the P5. The tradition was that the P5 did not send out uh, uh, peacekeeping troops during the Cold War. That obviously changed after, uh, after the uh, end of the Cold War. But interestingly enough, they recognized that, that, that their contribution to uh, international security through the global body actually is quite important. China cares about what's happening in Sudan. It's not surprising that they have uh, peacekeeping troops uh, uh, in, in that area. So we see other, uh, other great powers who are much more active in the international space. For example, the creation of the AIAB, the uh, Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank. There was a whole debate about whether the United States should participate. I argue, I was not in government at that time, but argued that yes, the United States, I think, should have participated, been one of the founding members. We did not do that. 
other uh, states did, and indeed you can look at, and several people you know, in this area have done, have done research looking at how the charter of that institution changed because of the participation of the United Kingdom and Germany and others. What might have happened if the United States had been at the table? in matters of the U.S. US shows up. Um, There will be, I think, a continued proliferation of a variety of international organizations of of varying types. Formal states, another one, um, and again, I, 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 uh, to pick up on a controversial uh, uh, or institutions, we're seeing also mechanisms that are acting like international organizations but are not formal organizations but are creating norms and interactions. That was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, both Democrats and Republicans in the political space in this, uh, uh, that uh, both of our candidates in 2016 uh, opposed it, but I would actually argue that many people missed the point that actually TPP created a framework that integrated political and economic and strategic and environmental and other issues into one mechanism. Those are actually probably what some of our future international organizations are going to look like, these mechanisms that draw everything together. And things like the CITES, which is actually the environmental protection regime, that would have been actually protected under trade law under TPP. There were really interesting things happening. Now that the United States is no longer part of it, the other members have gone ahead, taken out the parts the U.S. cared about, and gone ahead with that, or, uh, with that, uh, that framework. So as we look at uh, international institutions, states are using them in a variety of different ways. Emerging powers are using them in a variety of different ways. And I think that the, it behooves the United States to continue to be active in international stu- uh, institutions, because I'll end where I began, which is a world power has world interests and needs to be present everywhere. So, Ms. Ms. Conley, I want, sorry. No, I, I just want to uh, pull on what, what Esther said. I mean, in some ways, it's like a math formulation. You know, U.S. presence... Okay, that, but let's unpack that presence. It needs to be of sufficient senior stature. It's not just sending someone. Sometimes we feel like we send someone. It's sending with sufficient status. But it's so important, and this is where I think we have been lacking for the last decade or so. We have to have ideas, a positive agenda. We have to decide what we want. It's not institutional structures for institutional structures. These are instruments. They are effective instruments. How do we put that forward? So U.S. presence with with ideas and a positive agenda, plus shepherding our allies, our value-based community. Do you agree with that? Do you not agree with that? How can we get you on board? And then you have a really powerful force. But again, that's U.S. leadership. Engagement, we have ideas, we put it into motion, we shepherd our resources, and and we win. I would also caution that sometimes institutions get stuck. Sometimes this is a blocking tactic by members to say, I don't want this organization to work. Russia's behavior at the OSCE, Exhibit A. Um, Sometimes us at the UN Security Council, we're Exhibit B. Okay. So we can't allow progress, though, to stop. And I think that's where uh, the limitations of our imagination have occurred. But what we need, and you, you pulled that thread perfectly, we need to have, I call them coalitions of the committed, flexible coalitions. So when we get stuck, we can't allow the stuck part to reduce and erode the institution. We have to galvanize and create flexible flexible coalitions to say, we've got to do this. We need to have the political will. We need to take the demonstrable steps. We're not going to be able to solve this. And hopefully, we build that coalition of the committed to a point where 
passing that over to an institution that has the, the framework to take that forward. Um, but this is also, we have to take a step away from sort of the theology of multilateralism and have the overriding pragmatism of multilateralism work. Because as you're absolutely right, and I think this is where the Chinese are giving us a lesson in our own past practices, they are swarming international institutions with their delegations. They have a purpose. They know what they want to do with these institutions. And we sort of are watching and admiring what they're doing, but we don't have a response back to that. So as I said, I think it's a, we all can't go back to the way it was, but we need this agenda which has been missing. It needs to be a bipartisan agenda that does not, you know, we don't swing one way and then swing the other way, and we, all we do is swing while others are moving forward with their strategic perspective there. And, and I think this is where, I love institutions, don't get me wrong, but they cannot be an excuse for inaction. They cannot be uh, something that we hide behind because the institution, we have to start addressing these problems or other powers are addressing them on their own terms. Yeah. So, Professor. Yeah, I wanted to come on in what both of you said because um, it makes me think of two things. One, this question of, um, which actually also really affects Europe, this question of what is the, the narrative for the future of the West, both the European sensing, you know, where's the American leadership, where does America really want to go if you compare it to, you know, China's vision of the future 2050. You know, there's sort of, there's goals, there's aims, there's strategies, and there's a way of pursuing it. And, you know, we, we may disagree how this is done. We may not like the authoritarian regime. We might not, might not like the dear economy. But at the same time, you know, we had purpose after the Second World War. We had dreams after the end of the Cold War. But now we somehow seem to be lacking it. And so we are also not communicating anything to um, the populations, neither really in the United States nor in Europe. So it's almost like, you know, what is our horizon of the future? What are our ideas? But then linked to institutions or, let me say, maybe looser fora, um, it is then a real problem that what you have seen as a sort of... Um, axiom for many decades that there is a Euro-Atlantic community, a community of values and ideas and a way of life we believe in, even if there are differences between perhaps the more sort of society, welfare state oriented thinking, certainly in some European states, as opposed to the sort of more ne neoliberal, individual oriented um, capitalist way like in the US or perhaps in Britain. Um, the point is that if you have fora um, like the G7, then um, it is a problem and there's suddenly this sort of sense uh, in a rhetoric coming from, from Washington, there's friends and there's foes and suddenly the old friends are being turned into foes and everything is a competitive deal and we are not really um, trying to pull together even if we disagree. I mean, France and Germany often agree to disagree and they definitely have different outlooks and it's not helpful that, for example, the French out of their own historical goalist outlook, you know, they look for their uh, European strategic autonomy and that might not quite be um, what maybe the Americans are looking for for Europe to do and the Germans are a bit um, skeptical about what the French really want. Their nuclear power, Germany is not. Um, Germany has, you know, a whole, as I said, you know, pacifist uh, mindset uh, quite strong. Um, you know, we have problems in the Bundeswehr because there's a lot of um, brown thought. Um, we don't have conscription anymore, so the people who join the army are perhaps not thinking in, in, in a good way. But there's something else that actually um, goes across all this. 
if we have for our institutions, you often think, oh, this is boring, there's yet another summit, and then they're meeting again, and there's all this um, big media entourage, and you know, it's just sort of underwriting what Sherpas have done, and where is it all going? But of course, also often important meetings happen on the margins. And that leads me to something else that matters for statecraft and diplomacy. Dialogue and communication does matter. Trying to put yourself in the shoes of the other. If you are really interested in communicating and engaging, you have to do that with the other who you don't know very well or who you hate or who is your foe as much as with your friends if you want to do anything together because you can only really have that horizon for the future if you can create some kind of predictability in your engagement and relationships whoever you are dealing with. And I think that is sort of gone missing in the diplomatic lexicon, these sort of old terms that, you know, if we think of the 70s, it was all about, oh, what are the Chinese like? A Marco Polo trip by Kissinger Nixon, you know, to China. The Germans wanting a sniff of each other, you know, West Germans going to East Germany, you know, what are they like? It was all, you know, the antagonist other we didn't really know. Well, even if we do know, um, we still, if we want stability and if we want calculability and predictability and established trust, we have to engage. Engage. And then it doesn't help when we have very uh, inflaming rhetoric. And for that reason, if for nothing else, showing up, having meetings, um, and really maybe focusing on where do we want to go, not just constantly reacting. I mean, final example. It was really striking that when Theresa May went to Brussels the other week, um, her, her most recent time, the British were actually really shocked that suddenly over dinner they banged on for a few hours, but there was a statement by 27 European states saying something to the British in which way they were not going to budge. And, you know, these are very diverse European countries with different geopolitical outlooks and histories, and yet in a couple of hours they managed to forge a united position. So I think this is also something that perhaps needs to be looked at um, in the NATO context. I'm going to carry on from that thought. This is fantastic, just the dialogue. But um, I, I want to first take off from your point about uh, image abroad and sort of making an impact on, on, on other folks abroad, because that's my primary area of focus. I study uh, Chinese foreign policy and Chinese public diplomacy. So really, what type of an image is China trying to promote to the outside world? Well, one great exemplar of the type of an image that China wants to promote can be observed through the Belt and Road Initiative, this massive infrastructure and development project that over 70 countries have signed on to in the past couple of years that projects China as a strong country and a country that's willing to and wants to be engaged with other countries, be they developing or developed, all the way from China through the, the route of the old Silk, Silk Road to Europe and in many uh, African and Latin American countries. So really a global initiative. And I think that what we see with that initiative is, number one, some strategic sort of underlying reasons for doing it, like uh, continued economic growth. So China's right now trying to restructure its domestic economy to focus more on domestic consumption, but in doing that worries that the, um, that the growth rates won't be quite as quick or quite as large as they previously were. So one thing that the Belt and Road Initiative does is it allows it to rely on its sort of old style model of heavy investment in industry and infrastructure in order to continue to grow. Um, also just narrowing the, the income gap between the coastal centers, cities and the inner cities and um, 
also diversifying trade routes and diversifying ways that it can get oil to itself. But on the international front, what this initiative is really doing is it's allowing China to project itself globally. And it has this phrase, they call themselves, so China has initiated this new phrase of uh, which is a community of shared future. It's this idea that, you know what? We as the Chinese are here, we are getting stronger, and we want to be engaged with other nations because we've seen for the past 50 years U.S. dominance and the United States being the only prominent country in the world. And we think that as a community, we think that by working with other countries and really heralding a new era in which we can see greater multipolarity, we'll go, come into a phase in which we're all able to prosper more than under sort of like this... Uh, relatively sort of burdensome U.S. Uh, structure. That being said, I think another thing we should think about, as Dr. Bremer was saying, is what it means when we see a rising China who's being more prominent um, and is now creating its own international institutions. And so we talked a little bit about the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIIB, and there's also organizations like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that are really spearheaded by China. So the SCO is uh, an organization with uh, China, Russia, and I think four other countries that are in, uh, in, in Central Asia. And the main focus of that is to be somewhat like a, a NATO of, of Central Asia. Um, they tend to focus on issues related to sort of uh, uh, terrorism and, and security focus, but this is an organization with different values than we see in Western organizations. The AIB itself, I agree that it would be a good idea for the United States to be more involved. However, there are some concerning features of the AIB's governance even when European countries have been involved in the development of the bank. And so this is a bank that invests heavily in Asian infrastructure, supposed to work well with the World Bank and um, the ADB in the region, but some have also seen it as a competitor to institutions like the World Bank and the IMF that does not have um, a requirement to have guarantees of, great, of better governance, of greater democratization when it's giving loans. One of the interesting developments with the bank last year that just came into effect in January is um, sort of a, a decision that AIIB decisions on who will be funded, so which projects will be funded, does not have to pass through the board anymore, not always. So a lot of these banks, the ADB, the World Bank, they have boards of directors, and often the shareholders, the major shareholders, large, company, large countries that are, are contributing a lot to the bank, are able to make decisions about which projects are funded. There's now a rule that says not always the case with the AIIB, which means that the bank's management, the bank's president is a, a Chinese politician, um, can make decisions on the projects that the bank takes on, and that brings into question some of the accountability and the the transparency measures that are that are involved with the bank, right? Because usually you would have a situation in which the board has an, a say into which projects are funded. The board is representing major shareholders, and those shareholders are countries that represent the constituents. So you have this clear model of, of accountability going on. What we need to ask ourselves is with organizations that are being led by non-Western democracies now who do not necessarily share the same values as we do, how do we engage and still uphold our principles, right? So I just want to throw that in there. So history has shown that robust engagement in multilateral arenas represents long-term realism. To lead, we must be involved. 
To protect our national interest and the principles we hold dear, we must remain engaged. And to inspire those who suffer every day under authoritarian regimes, we must hold our own country to the highest standards on the world stage. These are the words of our co-chairman, Roger Wicker, and our ranking Senate member, Ben Cardin. And I think these words exemplify um, just the bipartisanship that still exists in much of Congress um, for supporting multilateral organizations. There are those in each branch of our, our government that are highly focused on these issues and really working to ensure a way forward that provides safety and prosperity for all. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.